online at livinghopechicago.com. We hope that today's message will encourage you in your relationship with God. So we are going through, uh, verse by verse, the, the gospel of Mark. Uh, this is the fifth message in the series, so if this is the first time you're hearing it, we've only missed a couple sermons. You can go to livinghopechicago.com and you can catch up to speed, listen to the other uh, messages from uh, this study so far, and each week, other than maybe a, a special occasion, Mother's Day or something like that, uh, each Sunday in 2019, we'll get together, we're going to look into the gospel of of Mark. And today it's very interesting. We're going to learn about a sin that can't be forgiven. Do you know there is a sin that can't be forgiven? At least the Bible talks about that. And some would call it the unpardonable sin. We're going to learn about that today and what that means. Before we do that, I was reading this story about, I don't even remember where I read it, but it really stuck with me. It was about a week or two ago. I read about this couple, Jennifer and Neil Flynn. They had just spent a day celebrating Jennifer's sister's wedding. Uh, they live, in, I believe, it was in Long Island, New York. Uh, they it was just a, a beautiful wedding, and they spent the whole day there. When the celebration was over, uh, Jennifer and Neil got into a limo with uh, Jennifer's parents and with Jennifer and Neil's children. They had two daughters, uh, Katie and Grace, and they get into... Um, uh, this limousine, and they're headed for home. And, and while they're on their way home, uh, this limo was struck head-on by a drunk driver. Uh, this drunk driver had at least 14 drinks, it was said by people who were at a bar with him that day. And when his blood alcohol level was taken, he was three times over the, the, the limit. And he was so drunk that he was on the wrong side of the highway the interstate, driving about 70 miles an hour on, in the wrong direction. And he hits this limousine head on. The driver of the limousine was killed instantly. And there was just a complete wreck of the vehicle. It's a terrible story, and I won't get into all the details, but uh, the, probably the saddest part about the, the wreck was the fact that the seven-year-old daughter Katie was killed during the wreck. She was the only other person who, kill, who was killed. Uh, uh, the mother and father, the grandmother, the grandfather, and the other younger daughter, Grace, they all sustained injuries, but all of them survived. As you can imagine, the physical toll was immense, but the emotional toll was even greater. That here they had to, to deal with the loss of their daughter, and it was actually her mother, Jennifer, that found her body and was looking for her through all of the wreckage and just a, a horrible situation. Another thing that just is so incredible about this story is one of the police officers first on the scene, I think he was the second police officer on the scene, was told by one of the paramedics who got there first, he was told by the police officer, you don't need to go over there, it's really, really bad. Basically saying, you don't want to look at that. He went over there and started to look at it, and it's when he realized that it was his family that was inside that limousine. And he too had been at the same wedding that they were at. He left early to start his tour with the police department. And now, a few hours later, he's with his family who have just lost, who was uh, their daughter, and then they're sustained all these injuries and just the emotional trauma of it all. And um, I read that story uh, probably about a week and a half, two weeks ago, 
uh, not knowing exactly what I would be preaching from Mark chapter 3. But when I read Mark chapter 3 this week and the, the passage we're going to look at today, I kept thinking about this word collision. Because I, what I think we see in the passage today is that there are two collisions that take place. There is a collision between two kingdoms that we see coming head on against each other. And there's a collision between kin. There's a collision that we see between Jesus' earthly family and the family of God. And I think you'll see that as we get through this message. So um, if you're able to stand, I want to invite you to stand with me because we don't have that many verses to read. If we have a lengthy passage, I'll let you remain seated. But out of respect for the Word of God, I would love for you to stand. And uh, I'm going to begin in verse 20. I'm going to read down to verse 35. Verse 19 tells us that Jesus and his followers went into a house. Verse 20 says, And the multitude cometh together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him. For they said, He is beside himself. And the scribes, which came down from Jerusalem, said, He that ha- he hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of devils, Casteth he out devils? We'll talk about what all that means in a minute. Verse 23, And he, that is Jesus, called them unto him, and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but hath an end. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Because they said, he hath an unclean spirit. Verse 31, there came then his brethren and his mother. This is Jesus' brothers and Jesus' mother, Mary, standing without. So they're outside the house where it was so busy with all the multitudes. And it says, they sent unto him, calling him. And the multitude sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked round about on them which sat about him and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. So in this passage, I think we see some collisions taking place. Collisions between kingdoms, collisions between kin. And so... What I want to speak to you about today is this, and it's on the screen if you want to write it down in a moment, but if you seek to follow Christ, you will experience the collision between rival kingdoms, and you will experience collision through the tension that you'll find in your own family. So if you follow Christ, you're going to experience the collision between two rival kingdoms on one hand, and you're going to experience a collision between your own family members through the tension of what it means for you to follow Jesus and how that will affect them. 
So these two separate collisions, I want us to look at that. What do we do when these things happen? How should we respond when these collisions take place? Will you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace and for your mercy, for Jesus, our Savior. I thank you for your word, and I pray you would use it today to speak to us, to teach us, to guide us in your truth, to strengthen our lives. And uh, Lord, that you'd use it to draw some to Christ today who don't know him. And for those of us who do know him, uh, to strengthen our walk with him, Lord. And so we pray you'd use this message today to help us to understand these collisions between kingdoms and the collisions that will take place even in our own family, among our own kin, because of our, our faith in you. Thank you for this time. Make it profitable to our lives. We pray it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You can be seated. What do we learn from this passage about the collision between rival kingdoms? What do we learn from this passage about the collision between uh, families. Uh, I want to give you three thoughts today. The first thing is that, that you have to understand is that there are rival spiritual kingdoms that are at war with one another for your soul. There are rival spiritual kingdoms, and they're spiritual, not physical, so they can't be seen with the physical eye, but real nonetheless Real kingdoms, rival kingdoms, at war with one another for you, for your soul, for your family. And we're going to see that in this story. Now, if you've been following along in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is um, ministering to the multitudes. He's in a packed house, Mark chapter 3 tells us. And there are a certain group of scribes who came down from Jerusalem And their purpose in coming from Jerusalem to where Jesus is at is they want to try to fatally discredit his ministry. They are intent on coming to share something with the people that will cause the people to not trust Jesus, to not want to listen to him, and to think that he is um, someone that they shouldn't believe and embrace. Now, um, you notice that in in Mark chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, Um, And then 22, it says that the scribes came down from Jerusalem. Now, scribes, I'm going to quote from a a theologian, Robert Piccarelli here, but he said scribes, this is on the screen too, are sometimes called lawyers. They were men devoted to the copying and studying of the law. So here are some experts in the Old Testament law, and they've come down to discredit Jesus' um, ministry. Now, what's been happening is Jesus has done some incredible miracles. Uh, He's made a paralyzed man walk. He's healed a a withered man's hand just already in the early days of his ministry. We're only three chapters into Jesus' ministry. He's already healed a paralyzed man. He's already healed the right hand of a man who was basically disabled with his right hand and couldn't work because of that. And he's cast out a lot of demons. He's done a lot of exorcisms. He's healed a multitude of other sicknesses. And so all this work that Jesus has been doing... It really demands a response from the religious leaders of the day. You know, they have to respond to this. Here's this one who's teaching, who's demonstrating power, and people are starting to follow him. So the religious teachers and workers, I mean, they have to respond to this. So they come down to give their explanation of what it is that Jesus is doing. And this is what they say in a nutshell. They come to the people and they say, this man that you're following, the one who's casting out devils, He's doing it by the power of Satan. So in other words, they're accusing Jesus of being possessed by Satan. 
Jesus is a worker of Satan, they're saying. And the word Beelzebub is an Old Testament word that was used to describe the gods of the Philistines. And it came to be kind of a synonym for devil or Satan. And that's what they said in, I think it's verse 22, He hath Beelzebub. And by the prince of devils, he casteth out devils. The prince is Satan. Beelzebub is Satan. So they said, this man is doing this work by Satan. Now, if you think that sounds crazy, you're in good company. Because Jesus said, that's crazy. And Jesus goes on to show them how absurd this is. By asking them a number of questions. He said, first of all, how can Satan cast out Satan? What kind of foolish logic is that? He said, and then he goes on to say, look, if there is internal division in a kingdom, if a kingdom is divided within itself, they can't stand. He goes, what about a family, even a household? He said, a a household, a family, a house, it can't stand if there is internal division. I mean, you take problems on the outside of your family and people attacking your family, people spreading rumors about your family, people wanting to ruin your family, that's hard enough. But then you've got fighting on the inside between husband and wife, between children. You take all that together, it, it's, it's going to crumble. I mean, can you imagine a, a, the United States trying to go to war against some, some nation and then while they're at war with the na- some other nation, there's also all types of of upheavals in our own cities and violence in our own cities and people trying to overthrow local governments. Can you imagine that? The fighting wars inside, fighting wars outside. Jesus said, this is, makes no sense. You're saying that I'm casting out devils who work for Satan and I'm casting them out? He said, this, this doesn't make sense. You see, what was really taking place is Jesus was not working for Satan. Jesus was warring against Satan. What was really taking place is that Jesus had come as the king of another kingdom, a rival kingdom, a kingdom that had stepped on the stage and announced that I am the king, I am bringing to you the kingdom of God, and he demonstrates the fact that he has authority over Satan's kingdom by casting out these devils, by healing these diseases, by healing these who are unwell. He was exercising strength over Satan. He was binding Satan's demons. He was delivering people who were captive to them. And these were rival kingdoms who were at war for the souls of people. And Jesus was showing that. Look at verse 27. I want to show you the illustration Jesus gave. Look at verse 27. No man, Mark 3, 27, no man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man and then he will spoil his house. Jesus used an illustration. He says that, look, if you're going to rob an MMA fighter, you better be sure that you tie that guy up first, right? I mean, if you're going to break into Hulk Hogan's house, you better make sure that you got a way to get Hulk Hogan, uh, which Hulk Hogan's probably 70 now, so it may be easier, but Hulk Hogan 40 years ago, <laughs> right? Uh, if you break into his house, you better make sure you got a way to lock him up. Make sure you have a way to bind this man, because if you don't bind him, he's going to bind you. You're not going to be able to rob him and steal his stuff and profit off of his belongings if you can't get to his belongings because he's going to withhold you. Jesus is saying, I've come into the world, and the first thing I've been doing is I've been binding the strong man, and the strong man is Satan. And Jesus is implying here, I'm the stronger man. 
I'm the stronger king. And by all these exorcisms, when I say to this person uh, that's demon-possessed, demons be cast out of him, I'm showing you that I'm binding the strong man. And I'm spoiling his goods. I'm delivering out of his hand these captive slaves. That's what's happening. You see, rival kingdoms at war for souls. Jesus was not working for Satan as they accused. He was warring against Satan. They had it all wrong. They had a, a number of things wrong, as we're going to see in a moment. But think about this verse, 1 John 3, 8, the latter part of it. So it's 1 John 3, 8, B. For this purpose, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested or appeared in the world, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And that's what Jesus was doing through his teaching, through his healing, uh, through his power, through his miracles. Uh, he was destroying the works of the devil. And ultimately, he did that on the cross, right? The devil's goal was to keep Jesus from the cross because on the cross is where Jesus would once and for all destroy the works of the devil by breaking captive sinners free by shedding his blood on the cross. He's destroyed the work of the devil. And we see that all through Jesus' life and all these things. Now, as it, what does this mean for you and I? Well, I just want you to simply understand there's a war for your soul. And you can't see this war going on. It's not fought with weapons and with guns and that kind of thing. It's the kingdom of Satan is at war with the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ. And they're at war for your soul. Now, I wonder, just ask this to yourself. Do you really believe that? you really believe that? you really believe that there are spiritual forces at work against you? And that God, through His Spirit and through His Word... And through the presence of Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, that he is working and warring against the devil for your good and for your salvation. And you know what? I would also love for you to see this reality that every person is a part of one of these two kingdoms. They're rival kingdoms, and you are a part of one of those two kingdoms. You're either a part of the kingdom of God, or you're a part of the kingdom of the devil. And they're the only two options. There's no middle ground here. There's no separate kingdom than those two. You're a part of one of those kingdoms. And every person begins... Now, look right here for just a second, because I really want you to get this. Every person... And I have a 16-day-old daughter. She's 16 days old. 17 today. 17 days. She's two and a half weeks old. All the way from her to the oldest person. We begin our lives belonging to the kingdom of Satan. We all do. Because of our sin nature and because of the, the curse of sin and human depravity, you don't start in the kingdom of God. I didn't start in the kingdom of God. You don't start by default in God's kingdom. You and I, me, you, we start by default because of our sin in the kingdom of Satan, in his grip. My little Charlotte, 17 days old, she is going to have to come to Jesus Christ through repentance and faith in order to be delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son. Every one of us start in the kingdom of Satan. The question you have to answer is, when were you delivered? Have you been? Or are you still in the grip of the kingdom of Satan? Or have you been delivered? Colossians 1.3, who, that is Jesus, hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. And I remember when that happened for me. I'm thankful for that moment and that ongoing blessing that I've experienced when Jesus Christ saved me from Satan and from sin and translated me into the kingdom of His dear Son. 
2 Timothy 2.24 says, And that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. What does that mean? It means every person by default of their sin and their sinful nature and human depravity that we've received from Adam and Eve passed down to us all, we begin as in the snare of the devil, captive at his will, needing to be recovered. That only happens through Jesus. We can only be set free through him. John 8, 32 says, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. If the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. So children, teenagers, mom, young moms, young dads, middle-aged, elderly, widowed, retired, we all must be made free if we're going to be in the kingdom of God and in the kingdom of God. Of Christ, And there are these rival kingdoms, and the, the kingdom of Satan will do everything he can to keep you in the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus, through his word and through his work, is doing everything he can do to deliver you from the kingdom of darkness. Because he wants your soul, but Satan wants your soul as well. That's what we see in this passage. Let me give you the second thing. Number two, there is eternal danger <clears throat> to siding with the wrong kingdom. Eternal danger to siding with the wrong kingdom. You know, the scribes were people who were supposed to be well acquainted with God's word. But Jesus showed them here they were in terrible danger of eternal damnation. And Jesus even warned them. Perhaps they were right on the brink. Maybe they had even crossed over that brink. But Jesus warned them that they were right on the brink of committing a sin for which there would be no forgiveness. Some have called this sin the unpardonable sin. What is this sin? It's called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Let me read it to you just so you don't take my word for it. Look at verse 28. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost, so there's our unpardonable sin, blaspheme against the Holy Ghost, hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal judgment. Now, there has been a lot of misunderstanding about what the unpardonable sin is. And uh, I've met a lot of people who think they've committed it, and we'll, we'll talk about that in just a minute. But what is the, the blaspheme, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Well, what is this? Well, let's start with what the word blasphemy means. Blasphemy means to speak reproachfully, to rail at, to revile, or here's maybe a, a, a clear way to understand it. It is to maliciously misrepresent. Maliciously misrepresent. And Jesus warned that to maliciously misrepresent the Holy Spirit or to speak reproachfully against the Holy Spirit is a sin for which there is no forgiveness. Jesus warned that this sin leads to remaining forever unforgiven. That's what verse 29, when it says, hath never forgiveness, it means literally forever unforgiven. Forever without forgiveness and eternally condemned in hell. Now, at the heart of the sin, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, many believe is this willful rejection and willful resistance of God's Spirit at work. So in other words, God's Spirit is at work with all men. God's Spirit is moving and working through His Word, through His messengers, through His power, 
through His Son to show us the way and the truth and the life. But you and I um, are prone to resist God's Spirit, to, to um, uh, reject His work in our lives, to willfully reject. But what we see Jesus doing here um, is, is showing them that what they are saying, they are accusing Jesus who is healing people, delivering people, preaching to people by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is doing that. But they are accusing Jesus of doing all of that in the power of Satan. And that's what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is. Here they are taking what the Holy Spirit is doing and attributing that to the devil. Look at verse 30. It says, because they said he hath an unclean spirit. They're accusing Jesus of here being possessed of a devil. And what a a dangerous thing that is. And Jesus is showing them just how grievously wrong they are. I mean, think about this. Here they are accusing Jesus of being under the power of Satan. And Jesus is showing them, no, you've got it reversed. I am the power of God. I am the king of the kingdom. You are under the power of Satan. You are the one in danger of eternal judgment. You are the one that needs to repent and come to believe in me for the forgiveness of sin. So not only were they wrong about the kingdom that Jesus belonged to, they were wrong about the kingdom that they belonged to. What a serious, serious mistake this was. So Jesus was helping them to see that there was eternal danger in siding with the wrong kingdom and to following the wrong king and even to be deceived into thinking they were part of the right kingdom when they are part of clearly the wrong kingdom. Maybe an illustration will help. I was thinking about this the, uh, the other day, but in the Old Testament, in 1 Kings chapter 1 and 2, uh, David was about to die. The Bible was saying he had lived his life and it's come time for him to die. And one of David's sons, whose name was Adonijah, had taken the opportunity, seeing that his father was about to die, this son, Adonijah, had taken the opportunity to try to put himself forward to be the king after David. Now, the problem with that is, is God had already said that Solomon would be the king after David. And everyone knew that Solomon was the one who had been ordained to be king uh, over Israel. But Adonijah wanted to, to step in there. He wanted to see during this kind of um, uh, time where there's a lot of uh, uh, unknown with David dying, maybe I can step in and, and take the kingdom. And so what he did was he created a ceremony with some followers of his that he got around him, and he anointed himself to be king. And there was a man named Joab. And Joab had actually joined with Adonijah and said, I'm going to follow you now as king, as leader of Israel. He sided with Adonijah. And this was a, a fatal mistake because what David did at that moment was had a, a ceremony ordained by God to anoint Solomon as king over Israel and Solomon to be king over the nation. And so here was Adonijah who said, I'm going to be king, but God and David and the rest of the nation know that it's going to be Solomon. And Joab finds himself siding with Adonijah not siding with Solomon. And that was a fatal mistake. Because in just a short time, Solomon would have Adonijah put to death. 
And then right after that, he would go hunting for Joab. Joab was on the wrong side of the kingdom. Joab had, had rebelled against the king. He had, he had gone against this plan. He had done many other things as well, too. And what I want you to see in that story is the siding with the wrong kingdom. You know, in our day, you hear a lot of talk about the dangers of being on the wrong side of history. And it's kind of something thrown about a lot today, isn't it? Being the wrong side of history in various you know, types of, 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 of cultural matters. And there's something to be said about that, I'm sure. But that pales in comparison to being on the wrong side of the kingdom of God. You know, I, I want to be on the right side of history. I don't want to be on the wrong side of history, but I most certainly want to be on the right side of the kingdom of God, not the wrong side of the kingdom of God. Through the years, there have been a lot of misunderstanding about the unpardonable sin. It's common for even some Christians to fear they've committed it. So let me say a few words about um, the unpardonable sin, against blasphemy of the Holy Spirit here, just so we can be on the same page, hopefully. I would say this first, and I'm not the first to say this. This is not original with me, but if you fear that you've committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that's probably one of the clear indicators that you haven't. Because I'm convinced from Scripture that someone who's committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit does not care. They're not sensitive to God's Spirit. So can I give you a word of comfort if you're afraid about that? If your heart's tender towards God, if you fear that you've committed it, you probably haven't, right? Because I don't think those who commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit are concerned or worried that they have. It's probably one of the clearest indications that you haven't committed it. Those who blaspheme against the Holy Spirit have no concern for Him. That's why they're maliciously misrepresenting Him. They're willfully rejecting Him. There's animosity there towards God. There's trying a way to explain away what God is doing because they want to reject it. But then on, the second thing I want to say is that we don't want to mistakenly think that the sin's never, for, never committed. So in other words, I don't want to treat this sin as if you, you commit it every day or that no one ever commits this sin and that there's no danger at all. I think the main point for, uh, for us to, to think about here is this, is the danger of resisting the, the work of God's Spirit in our lives. The danger of resisting the work of God's Spirit, the convicting work of God's Spirit. Maybe you're here, you're not a Christian, you've never truly repented of your sin to believe on Christ. God's Spirit's at work in you, and I would say be careful that you don't continually resist Him. Be careful that you don't turn away from His voice when He speaks to you about your need for Christ and forgiveness. And then I would say in these verses, it's, it's easy to miss the good news in all this. Did you notice what He said in verse 28? Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. Did you, did you see the good news in all that? We have such a gracious and merciful God that there is an untold host of sins that He is ready, willing, and able to forgive. As awful as they are, adulteries and murder and lies and pride, and lust, and anger, and our neglect of our families, and our selfishness, and all the other things that we've done, and all the filthy things that we've said, and all the hideous thoughts that we've had, that 
Our God is ready and able and willing to forgive of all host of things. Don't miss the good news in all this. That there is a grace that's given, a full grace given to us by God. That you and I don't have to stay on the wrong side of the kingdom. We, we don't have to stay in an unforgiven state. We don't have to face eternal danger. We can hear God's Spirit call out to us for forgiveness. We can turn to Him. We can experience the forgiveness and inclusion into His kingdom. And that is the good news. Number three, let me give you the final thing. We were talking about collisions between rival spiritual kingdoms. Number three, I want you to see this collision. That number three, there will inevitably come a time where you must choose between the will of God and the will of your earthly family. It's going to come a time in your life, if you really want to follow Jesus, that there's going to be a collision. It will happen for you between the will of your family and the will of God. Now, verse 20, excuse me, verse 21 says Jesus' friends, but it'd be better translated his family. His family had heard what he'd been up to, and they think that he's out of his mind. Verse 21 literally says they think he's beside himself. It means crazy. He is crazy. He's out of his mind. So they've come in order to kind of seize him. And that's what the word used here is. They went to lay hold on him. You see that in verse 21? And when his friends heard of it, that is his family, not just friends close to him, but his kin, when they heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him. For they said he's beside himself. They said he's crazy. We've got to get him back underneath our control here. He's kind of losing it. Now notice it, verse 31, it's his brothers and his mother that come. And can I just say like a, a small little note here, um, the absurdity of thinking that Jesus was the only child of Mary, that Mary was a perpetual virgin who never had children. Uh, there's a lot of evidence in Scripture that show that that's just absurd. First of all, why would Jesus be called her firstborn son? She gave birth to her firstborn son, Luke 2.7, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. And then there's multiple times in the Gospels where we find that Jesus had brothers, he had sisters. And here his literal brothers, Jesus was the oldest, he's the firstborn, Mary was a virgin when she had Jesus, but she did have other children, and her children, her sons along with Mary, come to Jesus. Now, at best, in this situation, this was a misunderstanding on their part about Jesus' work, about His identity and His mission. Maybe there was a misunderstanding. That's at best. That's assuming the best. At worst, this was a shameful accusation of saying that He was crazy and basically thinking He's incapable of caring for Himself. He's lost His mind. we got to go seize Him. Uh, because he's embarrassing us before he does something to hurt himself and others. But nevertheless, they have gone to where Jesus is at in order to kind of bring him back under reins because he's out of his mind. So they show up and they're expecting Jesus to just drop everything, come out there where they're at and listen to him. And Jesus has different plans in mind. And verse 32 down to verse 35 the multitude said, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside. 
Look what Jesus said in verse 33. He answered them and said, Who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked round about on them which sat about him. So his followers. And he said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. You see what's happening here? Jesus is showing that there are deeper ties than even blood family. That there's a more preeminent family than even your earthly family. Now, please don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying that your family doesn't matter, that you can just, oh, away with them, forget them. They don't matter. No, Jesus didn't say that. He's not doing that. In fact, we don't know. Jesus might have went out there at some point to try to explain what was happening and try to help them realize what's going on. But what Jesus is showing everyone there is that earthly family, as important as it is, it's temporary. It's temporary. But relationship in the family of God is eternal. And what he's really showing here is that God's will is superior to the will of your family. And I think another thing he's showing us in all this is that you can make an idol out of your family by making your family's will the preeminent thing of your life. I I think I've witnessed to some people who are part of some religious teaching and belief And as I'm sharing the gospel with them, I think I've seen God begin to open their eyes up to see that the truth is in Christ, it's not in Buddha. The truth is in Christ, it's it's not in works. The truth is in Christ, it's not in traditions of religion. But I think I've looked at people who when they came to that moment of decision, are they going to believe and follow Christ or not? I think what I've seen many times It's people who have looked at these truths and who have said, but you know, I can't disappoint my family. My mother was devoted to this religion. My father was a priest in this faith. What's happening here is someone who's saying, the will of my family is greater than what God has revealed about His will and who He is. And I think what Jesus is showing here is, yes, I have an earthly mother and these brothers, and yes, I'm not trying to treat them as if they don't matter. But I've come to do the will of my Father, and I've come to bring many brothers and sisters into the kingdom of God. And He says, you're talking to me about my earthly family. I'm wanting to talk to you about my spiritual family. And He says, if you want to be a part of my family... It's not going to be through blood relationship. It's going to be by coming to know me through the Father. Look what he says in verse 35. For whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now, Jesus wasn't teaching some kind of works-based salvation. Hey, do the will of God and He'll save you. What He's showing here is those people who do the will of God are the people who God has saved. They are the people who are my family. And we are together are serving the Lord. I love what a man named R. Kent Hughes said about this passage. He said, there's a deeper kinship than flesh 
and blood, a spiritual kinship which is characterized by obedience to the Father. Jesus focused not on his earthly family, but it's on his spiritual family, the family of God. He was demonstrating that the will of God was superior to the will of an earthly family. And at this point, the will of his heavenly Father and the will of his earthly family, there was a collision. There was Jesus' mother and brothers who were saying, Jesus, we have this for you to do. And God the Father was saying, Jesus had this to do. There's a collision. And Jesus is saying, I am doing the will of my Father. Because my allegiance is greater to my Father and His will than it is to my earthly family. You know, a few weeks ago I told you the story about when we were praying for the Palestinian territories and the persecution that's experienced there. I told you a story about a a girl that they call Nadia. That's not really her name. They changed it for security and protective reasons. But Nadia was... um, had an amazing testimony how she came to faith in Christ, even though she grew up a, uh, a Muslim, she grew up a part of Islam. Um, and when she became a Christian, she was afraid of what would happen in her family. She was surprised to find out that her mother was uh, open to the idea and was accepting of her being a Christian. But her father, when he found out about it, was so angry, so emotional about it. He said, uh, let me quote here. He said, she said, he forced me to leave the house to leave my community and build my life elsewhere. She said for years, her father refused to speak to her because she would not forsake Christ and turn back to Islam. And this is just one example of many that could be shared of the collision that happens a lot of times between the will of God and the will of earthly family. Matthew 10, 37, Jesus said, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I'm almost finished. And again, I want to reiterate, Jesus is not anti-family. He's the, the one who created family. He's not saying you have to cut all family ties. You and I have responsibilities to our families, and we need to uphold those responsibilities. Jesus was not dishonoring his family, although they may have felt that he was. He was not dishonoring his family. He was honoring his father. And by the way, I think he was doing them a great service in showing them that the father's will was greater than the will of any earthly person. A hard lesson it may have been for them to take, but a necessary lesson for them to understand. Let me give you a few applications. Your earthly family, your husband, your wife, your children, that is a wonderful God-ordained relationship In the family, it's wonderful, but it's temporary. And I think you need to receive it like that. It's temporary. There is a different, there's not a husband-wife relationship in heaven. And we need to understand that, yes, it's so important here. And yes, other than Jesus, my my primary um, responsibility goes to my wife and to my children, to my family. That is true, but I cannot... I I cannot substitute that order. I can't put Melissa and Carly and Colby and Charlotte and God here. It must be God. It must be Jesus. It must be His will. And then under that, my family. It must be that way for you because our earthly family is temporary. The family of God is eternal. Number two, God's will for your life is superior to your family's will for your life. And your situation 
And I hesitated using Nadia as an example because you may listen to that story and say, you know what, I'm never going to experience that. And your story may not be as extreme as Nadia's, but make no, no mistake about it. Even if you live in America for all of your life and you want to be a Christian, make no mistake about it, you're going to experience a collision. Let me give you some examples of those collisions. The way you view and use money. You, know, you try to tithe, and you're going to have some family members that say, 10%, are you crazy? You're not going to be able to save enough. You want to tithe and give up that much portion of your income to a church? I mean, think of the car you could have. Think of the upgrade in your houses you could do. You give to missions, and you're sacrificial and generous. You don't think that's going to create some tension in your family? I know a lot of husbands and wives that have that tension. The husband wants to spend it on his Harley. The wife wants to be generous to God, his work. There's tension there. How about your time and your priorities? There are going to be people in your family who don't understand. That Sunday mornings, you've devoted those to to the Lord, to his people, to his church. You know, not to the beach on Sunday. Not not to go and hanging out with them, right? Priorities and time and how you view those things. How about the way you raise your kids? I mean, people who don't understand that you raise your kids differently. That, 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 that there are certain things you don't allow your kids to do because you're trying to, to guide them in truth and protect their conscience and, and to, to, to shape and mold them. They're not going to understand that. Maybe your conduct, that there are certain things you will participate in, certain things you won't participate in. And that they see there's a difference. They may ridicule you about that. You don't drink with them. You don't, you don't carry on in some of the things that they do. There's going to be a collision there. Maybe even your opinion and your views and your beliefs about controversial matters. Maybe you've had this experience where you've had a family member ask you, you know what, I hear you're a Christian. Do you really believe that homosexuality is a sin? Or do you really believe that people who don't follow Jesus go to hell? Do you really believe that? Your, your belief, your opinion, your, your views about things that are shaped by the Bible that are different from theirs. And this is just a few ways I could talk to you about many more. There's going to be collisions. And what you have to settle in your heart is that you will follow God's will. And that God's will is superior. And that you're not on a mission to make your family mad. You're not, you're not, you're not going to be like a Pharisee and say, look, I'm the representative of God and I don't care what you have to say. No, but it's just going to happen. That when you follow God's will, there's going to be a collision with your family and they're not going to understand it. And it's going to cause some tension for you. And it may not be as extreme as Nadia's, but it's going to cause some tension. And you have to be okay with that. And you have to be gracious about that and compassionate about that. But ultimately, you must do God's will if it collides with your family's will. They didn't have automobiles in Jesus' day, but they did have collisions. You know, not the kind of collisions that happen with car wrecks, but they had the type of collisions that happened between rival kingdoms and between families that didn't understand what Jesus was up to. And so there are rival spiritual kingdoms at war for your soul. There's eternal danger in siding with the wrong kingdom. There will inevitably come a time when you will experience having to make a choice between the will of God and the will of your earthly family. 
If you committed your life to Jesus Christ or made a spiritual decision, we would like to rejoice with you. Please connect with us on our website, livinghopechicago.com. We hope you'll join us next time for another encouraging message from God's Word.